This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. There's not much doubt that you have recognized that many tech companies have changed the focus they have in the last several years. Instead of being content with being in their own world, like Amazon at the outset uh, as a bookseller, or now just kind of reselling clothing items, they want to expand and control more of our experience. And much of this movement has occurred due to the reliance on algorithms for that data by companies. It has changed the ways that they think about connecting with consumers, but it's also changing the way that consumers think as well. And a new book suggests that it might not necessarily always be the best thing for us out there. Franklin Ford is, the national, is a national correspondent at The Atlantic. He's also author of the book World Without Mind, The Existential Threat of Big Tech. And it's great to have Franklin joining us today. Franklin, thank you for your time today, sir. I'm so pleased to be here. Thank you. I mean, it is interesting when you think about companies like Amazon and, and what they were, say, 20 years ago and what they are now. I, they they have truly transformed themselves over the course of a couple of decades. Amazon is really one of the most impressive specimens in the entire history of American business. I mean, it started off as a bookstore, then it morphed into becoming the everything store, <laughs> and it's kind of morphed beyond that. We know about Amazon Web Services and how it powers the clouds, powers the cloud, and we've seen how. It just keeps expanding, uh, culminating most recently in its decision to purchase Whole Foods. And the same could be said of, for, 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 for Google, which set out to organize knowledge, but then became Alphabet, which has this whole massive portfolio of concerns, including a life sciences co- company that aims to, uh, to make us immortal. And... The question is, where do these companies end? And do we have a problem ultimately with their size? Um, And uh, these are questions that go to the fundamental nature of our economy and whether we can really have a competitive capitalistic system. And then there are more fundamental questions about the future of our culture and the future of our democracy, because what these companies do is amass tremendous troves of data about us. And what are those troves of data? They're portraits of our psyche. And they use this incredibly powerful information about us in order to, to alter our behavior. And um, there's a huge amount of convenience that comes with that. But there are also, I think, real important questions that need to be asked of these companies. And in the last couple of months, it, it, it happens that we've started to ask some of these questions. I think the outcome of the last election um, with uh, the proliferation of fake news and Facebook's, the debate over Facebook's culpability in that, in that question has triggered a real backlash against that company. And there's just a, a number of flashpoints that have, have shifted the debate considerably. It, it, then it's, it's definitely a concern of yours as to where we are headed with these companies. And, and, and realistically, you could look at, at three or four companies uh, that are giants in the tech world uh, that, that are having unbelievable amounts of control over so many different things in our, in our society right now. Yeah, 
absolutely. The Europeans call them GAFA, Google, Amazon, Facebook, and Apple. Um, and I think that part of the, there, there are just a couple reasons why these guys have triggered so much anxiety and why I found myself drawn to asking hard questions of them. Um, the first is what we talked about, which is the accumulation of data. And then the second is the way in which that data ends up getting leveraged, that we're in the realm of algorithms and machine learning and artificial intelligence where uh, the advantages that accrue to the companies that have mastery over those things end up compounding over time. And so the gap grows between th those big four and everybody else. And we may we may already have reached the point where people stop trying to even bother chasing them. Um, I mean, I, there's maybe arguably Weiwei and, and, and uh, you know, some other players who are still kind of in the ball game. But in Silicon Valley, the, the greatest ambition now is not to displace Google or Facebook. It's to get bought by Google and Facebook. And I think that there's, you know, there's a real question about entrepreneurship here, which is that um, – is where where are the opportunities? If you cease to, to exist in, a, in an economy where you can displace those big players, the, the incentive to aim for the, the stars to try to create those types of unicorn, unicorn companies diminishes. Yeah. We're talking with Frank Lefort, who is the author of the book, World Without Mind. Uh, he is also a national correspondent uh, at The Atlantic. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866 is the number to give us a call. You, you had, there's a couple of comments, actually, uh, you know, the, the book is phenomenal. But on the book jacket, there's a couple of things that, that are written there that I wanted to, to talk about for a second because I think they're very interesting and, and get your response to it. Uh, and let me read from the from the book jacket. As these companies have expanded, marketing themselves as champions of individuality and pluralism, their algorithms have pressed us into conformity and laid waste to privacy. They've produced an unstable and narrow culture of misinformation and put us on a path to a world without private contemplation, autonomous thought, or solitary introspection. A world without mind. And that's that that really encompasses a wide range of stuff that that touches so many people these days, but it kind of brings it down into a kind of a, a smaller niche to really have people start to think about this. Yeah, I mean, I I think that there's so much about technology that's so wonderful, and I just think about my daughter's lifetime. I have a daughter who's 12 years old. Yep, and. Uh, you talked about the next iPhone release. Well, when she was born, there was no iPhone. There was no Kindle. There was hardly social media. And over the course of this decade, incredible things have happened. And the real monuments to human creativity. And, uh, and it's hard not to bow down before these creations. But the magical qualities of these creations shouldn't distract us, shouldn't preclude us from asking skeptical questions, because the stakes here are supremely high. Um, you know, over, the course of, <laughs> over the course of the long history of humanity, we've always had tools, and those tools have been extensions of us. They've been th you, know, you could argue that technology is one of the things that defines us as a species, but What's getting automated right now isn't upper body strength. It's not we're not we're not automating our ability to plow the fields or 
make widgets. We're talking about the right. automation of mental exercises and that these companies have technologies that are intellectual technologies. And you know, between us and reality, we have these companies now, that they are the filter that we use in order to get news and information. They intend to create virtual realities that we're going to be inhabiting. And they're trying to complete this long merger between man and machine. That's, that's their stated goal. And soon these technologies are going to be not just worn on our wrists or worn as glasses. They're going to be implanted within us. And we just need to ask the biggest questions about what makes us human and about what are the things that we want to preserve in this, this transition. You can't. Right. You can't fight the flow of technology, but we, shouldn't also, we should also assume that as human beings, we have agency. We have ability to shape our own destiny and our own future, and we should be active in doing that, not just passively accepting whatever comes next. Well, it's amazing, and we were just talking about uh, Amazon and, and the one-click patent, which ends, which they've had for you know twenty some odd years, right. and it ends today. Uh, how uh, impactful some of these changes have been on things like like retail and yeah. you know the changes in retail where you know the malls have, have gone significantly down in terms of their use in the last few years what we see in manufacturing uh, you know now that with with the number of robots that are used in a variety of manufacturing fields I mean we have we have totally it's it's almost doing a 180 in yeah. terms of what our economy is well let's just take that one question of uh, the future of retail, for instance, which is something I've, I've thought about just because I grew up, my dad was a small business owner, and he had a, he had a small chain of stores. And um, he kind of taught me a real appreciation for the value of small business and capitalism. He was also, he was a weird combination of being an antitrust lawyer, which also uh, really affected my thinking about, about capitalism yeah. as well. And that just the virtues of having a competitive, a competitive, diverse marketplace and what that means for us as both consumers, but also we need to think about it, what it means for us in terms of citizens. And so while prices may be low, we need to start asking questions about, you know, these questions about the future of work. As stores disappear, a whole big source of jobs is evaporating. So that's one big question. And then I think about it just in terms of what makes life meaningful. And, um, you know, if we live in a world where we're, if we're, we're planted in our own houses and we're able to summon every move, we're already able to summon every movie, every book to our fingertips. And, and that kind of takes away a great opportunity to go out and experience culture in a collective sort of way. But I think about commerce as being actually like a, a fundamental social experience that when I go to the store, I get out of my house, I interact with other people, and you know, it may seem trivial, it might seem incredibly superficial, but those interactions are actually really important to us in the way that we think about our fellow human beings and about, uh, about the quality of our, of our own lives. And so what comes next when commerce is entirely uh, virtual? Um, how will how will human interaction change? How will our society change? Um, are we happy with those changes? Um, you know, what what at what price convenience and efficiency? 
And I don't pretend like these are easy answers. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I don't, I don't pretend like that we're not accruing incredible benefits from all of these changes. But we, we should also just spend a little bit of time thinking about what we're losing in the process. We are joined uh, by uh, Franklin Four, who is the author of the book "World Without Mind: The Existential Threat to Big uh, of Big Tech." Your comments are welcome at eight four four Wharton eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. Or if you can't get to your phone, you can send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio one eleven or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney twenty one. We've talked a little bit about Amazon, but I want to talk about a couple of the other in the Big Four that that you kind of focus on. Uh, one being Facebook, and and when you think about what Facebook was uh, at the outset uh, with Mark Zuckerberg uh, and what it is right now. How do you see Facebook's role in this process having, having well, I mean, with the way we consume media these days, that's, that's one thing. Uh, but how do you see their role kind of changing us even further going forward? Well, I can, I, I, I want to just talk about this from a very narrow perspective, which is that I'm a journalist. Yeah. And over the course of my career as a journalist, uh, the profession has become extremely dependent on Google and Facebook. Yeah. And so what happened? And so it's as, as advertising markets collapsed, uh, the, the, there became this need to really scale up in a quick sort of way. And yeah. the only way to get the, the, the revenue was through growing traffic, and the only way to grow traffic was by relying on these platforms. And that meant that journalism needed to master these platforms. And it's, it's a very unhealthy state of dependence because it's not just the values of those platforms end up becoming the values of everybody who depends on those platforms. And so as, a, as an editor, the type of work that we did changed because we needed to succeed in Facebook, and so and, and it was—it's kind of a debasing thing where we, you know, the headlines we wrote had to be kind of sensationalistic in a way that could could travel on Facebook. The subjects that we had to write about had to tap into the hive mind that existed on Facebook, and instead of instead of shaping instead of shaping the news instead of uh, making choices that were ennobling for our readers, trying to expand the, the minds of our readers, we ended up doing a whole lot of pandering. And um, it's just, it, it can't be healthy in the long run. And I saw this in my magazine. I, I edited a magazine that was uh, left of center. Yeah. And the mood that, face, that, that exists in the world right now is, is, is not left of center. It's kind of left. Yeah. And, and I found... Just the, to get traffic, there was this temptation constantly to pander to what politicians call the base. Sure. Oh, absolutely. And, and, and I see this all the time. It's a dissent to be to be somebody who disagrees with what other whatever the consensus is is to kind of be cast out. Um, and this, it's just not healthy ultimately for our politics to have these these two tribes and. We think about our politics as extremely polarized, and it is, but it's also extremely conformist right now, that if you live in one of these two tribes, your, your, inf your informational ecosystem is extremely restricted, 
and you're, you, you get what Facebook does is it's a feedback loop where you get what you want to hear. And so we just get driven further and further into our corners through this technology that's, that's giving us what we want. I'll ask you basically the same question, but with Apple as, as the subject. Yeah, so I'm actually, of the big four companies, of the GAFA companies, Apple is the one that, uh, that troubles me the least. Um, you know, I, what, what, do I, what do I dislike about Apple? Well, I, I dislike the way in which it collects data. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and, but, but Apple is, you know, fun, in the end of the day, Apple is a hardware company and kind of less involved in the sorts of intellectual technologies that I've described. And Apple's done things to remake the music industry, for instance, that I think I probably, on balance, I don't like. Mm-hmm. But um, if, I were to, if I were to rank the four co- companies that we were talking about in terms of their perniciousness, I would put Apple kind of at the bottom of the list. What about Google? So... Google, to me, the, the problem. I mean, Google. We've talked about its kind of um, its its ever expanding goals. And the thing that bothers me about Google as as a company is that there's almost a religious intensity to what they do. Mm-hmm. That Sergey Brin and Larry Page come from the world of artificial intelligence, and yeah. artificial intelligence is this incredible thing. Um, but they're people who have uh, – there are different ways to practice artificial intelligence. There's kind of a way that, that thinks about it in an incremental sort of way about, uh, you know, being able to scan checks. And, uh, and there are all sorts of ways in which it's an incredible convenience. But then there are other people who want to achieve what's called um, to, to, become a, to create AI complete, which is to create an artificial intelligence that – is really truly akin to a human intelligence that has uh, an understanding of language and that there's there's a whole almost messianic vision that comes with it. Um, I don't know if you've heard of, I'm sure you've heard of Ray Kurzweil, who is the this guy, <clears throat> this engineer, an amazing engineer, who has this idea of the singularity mm-hmm. of this moment where we, we completely merge with the machine and the machines become smarter than the humans and we end up downloading our brains into this virtual world where we live forever. And it's, it's, it's really a religious vision. And I think that it, Ray Kurzweil is the director of engineering at Google now. And I think that, the, that Larry Page uh, has uh, a version of this sort of fantasy that he entertains, and that's his ambition for the company. And I think it's a bit of a sci-fi fantasy, so I'm not really concerned about the singularity. Mm-hmm. But what I'm concerned about is that when you believe that you're on this kind of messianic mission, and when you treat your job with that kind of religious fervor, all of the temporal concerns, all of the concerns about law and ethics and the present and what you might be destroying end up getting thrown out the window. And this is kind of a problem that I have more generally with the, these companies and why there's, it's, I, I, you know, I wrote a book 
because I'm criticizing companies, you might think that I wrote a, a, a left-wing book. Or, or, right. or, But it's actually, I tried to write, I think I wrote a pretty a deeply conservative book where I'm really worried about the fate of important institutions. That as human beings, there's a lot of wisdom built into the things that we've developed over time. And I worry that some of these companies are just, are, are so fervent and so hubristic and self-confident about what they're doing that they don't really pause to consider what's being destroyed in the course of rushing to a glorious future. Well, right. And, and part of it is also the fact that we've, we've moved in the last several years uh, to a society where, I mean, income inequality is, is, is a staggering issue right now and still is going to be one that's going to be around for quite some time. And it just, I mean, you talk about the, the political divide that we have in this country. Well, the economic divide kind of multiplies that. Oh, absolutely. And, and I think we need to look at the ways in which these companies end up, um, end up exacerbating the divide. I mean, the, the ways in which they sit on these piles of cash. And if you work for one of these companies, your life is amazing. Right. It's, we all know the famous the famous uh, corporate campuses and all of the incredible benefits that comes with working for one of these monopolistic firms. Yeah. So what we what we see a lot of in the economy is that the gap between the way it's not just a gap between the rich and poor in the aggregate sense, that there's a gap almost between the rich and poor within each of these sectors. So right. if you're. If you're the second or third player in one of these fields, you, you just don't get paid the same as as you do at these other companies because uh, you, you, these companies collect monopolistic rents um, that they're able to because they have such a dominance in their field and because they don't actually have to worry about competition. Um, they can sit on piles of cash and distribute it in whatever way they want. They can hoard it, as Apple does, or they can distribute it to their workers in terms of benefits that keep them keep their workers sure. tethered to those companies. Yeah. But everybody else in the economy uh, doesn't have the pleasure of benefiting from monopolistic rents. And so the gap, the gap grows. Great having you on the show, Franklin. Thank you very much for your time. Okay, my pleasure. Thank you. The book is World Without Mind, The Existential Threat of Big Tech. It's available in bookstores and online for your purchase now. Many thanks to Franklin for joining us, uh, author of the book and national correspondent for The Atlantic. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.